When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly, and welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report broadcast live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We have a great show for you today, our 216th, and we have a return visitor, Cameron Carey, the former general counsel and acting secretary of the Department of Commerce, um, returns to talk about a report he and his firm, um, Sidley and Austin, have issued um, on the EU-US privacy divide. And um, we talked earlier about the battle over the EU-US um, safe harbor and how uh, the European Court of Justice found that the US system uh, privacy protections were insufficient. And um, his, his firm has issued a report that challenges some of those assumptions, and we're going to be talking about that. Um, so, Cam, are you with us? Uh, I am. Uh, good day to you, Bennett. Good Thank day to you. your listeners. I, I very appreciate that introduction. Uh, all rise. Be <laughs> we have a, a certain, good to be back. That, that's actually, and, and as you may know, that's probably the limit of our formality during the show. But um, okay, are you calling from, are you, uh, I called your 617. Are you in Boston or? For, uh, I am uh, based primarily in Boston. Uh, oh. My time in Washington as well. So I, uh, before we jump into the report, I do have two quick questions, uh, which you, you can answer as you wish. But the first is, you know, today we just had the, the big, we have this strange political season that's going on. And you know, we just had the result in Michigan, when, which is a state which you won when you were campaign manager for your brother. Um, when you look at something like this, this election season, is it something where you, you, you say uh, – you want to get back in the fight? Any inkling, or you're like, thank God, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not there. Thank God, I'm watching CNN instead of actually being in, in Iowa and Michigan and all those other places. Uh, well, a little bit of both, a little bit of both. Uh, I'm, I guess, on balance, uh, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be home. <laughs> and, and I do one other question. And since this week starts uh, the whole March Madness with the conference. Um, the conference playoffs leading to the NCAA tournament in basketball. And I, I just remember, especially in D.C., when the, with so many ACC and Big East schools um, the, represented in the firms there, that this was just a period where a lot of people all of a sudden weren't in their offices and found excuses to be at places where there were TVs. And I wonder, when you were in the Department of Commerce, are there any studies that show any uh, lost productivity in the, in the I, economy? You know, I haven't seen any <laughs> any studies. And I, I guess I'd say I do. Uh, I I didn't really notice any. You know, the, uh, occasionally, uh, depending how late the games ran, the night before. That's true. So I was just curious. It just seems like, you but, have, but yeah, and the daytime games are uh, those. Uh, that's such a quick flurry. The, the economy recovers, but any yeah. event. Um, so the main event today is not uh, is not basketball, but actually something more important, and that's uh, privacy, which has been mm-hmm. determined a fundamental right on, on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And we got to this point through a decision by the European Court of Justice uh, invalidating the um, safe harbor because of the lack of protections afforded to what they believe EU citizens and that we couldn't protect them from indiscriminate um, surveillance, primarily relying on the revelations of Edward Snowden and the, the NSA um, surveillance apparatus. And um, and so that when you read that decision, what, what triggered you 
um, Sid Lee, the team there, to, to respond in, in this fashion by issuing the report? Well, a couple of things, Matt. Uh, you know, first, uh, I think we wanted to uh, help make very clear on both sides of the Atlantic what uh, uh, what the Court of Justice in the European Union uh, did and didn't do. Um, uh, so while you know, the questions that were raised about U.S. surveillance were certainly stemmed from uh, the Snowden revelations, uh, uh, contrary to what some people perceived about the decision, it did not say that the U.S. engages in massive and indiscriminate uh, surveillance. But simply that, that the the allegations, uh, as reflected in uh, reports that the the European Commission uh, had issued, uh, raised a question, uh, and the court uh, essentially decided: look, the the European Commission, when it adopted the Safe Harbor Framework uh, back in 2000, uh, didn't uh, uh, didn't do enough to assure. Uh, that that you know, there are adequate safeguards uh, uh, against uh, U.S. surveillance uh, in uh, the in the U.S. privacy system, um, and that that to ensure that the protection is uh, of European uh, citizens and data of European citizens who get transferred to the U.S. is essentially equivalent to what. Uh, what uh, they receive under uh, European law. And that was the standard that the court set, was essentially equivalent. And then the second part of what we wanted to do was to look at, all right, what does it mean under European law, uh, under the EU legal order was the term that the court uses, uh, what does what does it mean? What do you have to do to be essentially equivalent? Um, and uh, how do you make that comparison? And then finally was to do the hard work of drawing the comparison. Right. To look at, all right, under EU law, well, how does surveillance operate? What are the required safeguards uh, for surveillance, and uh, you know, everybody knows that the European countries are uh, engaging in surveillance of their own. Uh, so, what are the standards that apply to that? And then uh, look at what the U.S. does in terms of its safeguards against surveillance, uh, and what the U.S. does in terms of uh, uh, protecting privacy in the commercial arena. So it was an ambitious report, uh, why it was uh, uh, 188 uh, pages uh, uh, at the end of the day. But it's, I will tell you that, you know, that the arguments there are something that I have been itching to do for, uh, for a long time. Uh, when I was at the Department of Commerce, uh, uh, part of my role as the administration's leader on privacy issues was to deal with uh, the European Union and to explain our system uh, to them and to draw the comparisons. Uh, and uh, you know, this, uh, this really... Uh, documents in a thorough way those comparisons. And, and so when you were, were Commerce Secretary, excuse me, and Commerce General Counsel and later Acting Secretary, the, the EU safe harbor debate had, had came up uh, several times, I imagine, and because there had been, prior to this decision, there had been some unhappiness um, on the part of the EU in terms of the, uh, I guess, the compliance with the safe harbor. Uh, it was, yeah, it, it certainly emerged uh, as an issue, but uh, some of the same people uh, on the European side who've been critical of Safe Harbor more recently uh, were defending it. Yeah. Um, uh, and it really wasn't until the Snowden the revelations came along, and I think the political firestorm that happened uh, particularly in the EU as a result of that, that that you know, the, the 
complaints about Safe Harbor really uh, took on critical mass, and that the, the issue of surveillance, which is essentially outside the European privacy regime, regime uh, and outside what was covered by Safe Harbor, became a central issue. Now, it's, when you were the Department of Commerce, the, the Snowden revelations, it, 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 we've had people on the show talked about in the, the cloud computing industry how it has cost U.S. business in Europe uh, as um, people switch to non-U.S. cloud providers, and it has had some substantial impact on U.S. business. We, we, did you get an airful from you know the, the tech community on this uh, while you were at the Congress? Absolutely, man. Uh, <laughs> although I would tell you, uh, Air Force being yeah, kind. I, uh, I I didn't need that because um, you know, the moment the moment I saw those stories, uh, I knew what a disaster this was commercially, what a disaster it was for internet governance, what a disaster it was for uh, our privacy debate. Uh, uh, with the Europeans, uh, and you know, a disaster sort of for moving forward, I think, on, on privacy in the commercial sector. I mean, I had you know, led the work on the administration's uh, uh, Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights. We were at work at you know, putting that into the form of legislation and uh, trying to finish up that project. And you know, my first reaction was, oh, God, you know, no way that we can put anything out on commercial privacy with these huge issues on uh, privacy in on the government right. side uh, out there. And uh, the companies uh, are, are going to take a hit. And all of the perceptions that uh, we, I think we're making some headway and changing uh, uh, in Europe about U.S. privacy, uh, we're just... Going into a tailspin. So you must. So the word Snowden was something that you just heard repeatedly. Then at that point, yeah, from that and, point on, and I was I was tearing my hair out, and uh, <laughs> I think uh, you know, people people in the White House recognize uh, today that uh, trotting President Obama uh, out to say, "Don't worry, uh, no American citizens are being spied on." Uh, was a huge red flag to uh, the rest of the world and to Europe in particular. And, and so the, this report, um, obviously Snowden triggers, in essence, this, this steamroll of events and uh, in part and contributes to the, uh, the decision of the European Court of Justice. In fact, um, Snowden sent a, a tweet to the, the plaintiff in the, that case, um, for you know, his efforts. Congratulations, Max Schrems. You've uh-huh. changed the world for the better. And um, so it definitely, the, the two are connected in many ways. So in, in terms of the report, you know, as the title says, you know, essentially equivalent. Um, you, you start off by explaining that that is the standard they, they follow. And, and then you, you kind of jump in. Um, in terms of first, let's let's you know, start off with uh, what do each of us do in terms of surveillance? And you know, I was surprised in looking at you know, the report, uh, the extent to which surveillance exists in Europe, and it's not just for national security reasons. Some of them, it's even for economic reasons. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, we looked at uh, eight different uh, member states, uh, uh, including uh, some of the largest ones, France, Germany, uh, uh, and Italy, and and the UK. Um, And in most of those countries, uh, uh, the the breadth of of the reasons that that the government can undertake surveillance uh, are much broader than what is defined uh, uh, under our Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, um, and, uh, and include uh, economic uh, uh, surveillance in the sense of industrial espionage. And, you know, some, of, some of our allies engage in that. I think uh, there's, there's certainly 
I think a developing norm that's come out of uh, the response to China to change that. Uh, um, uh, and we've seen that in you know, the, the cybersecurity agreement with China last year, and now European countries are trying to replicate that with China. And clearly they're going to have to uh, rein in their own uh, industrial espionage if, uh, if they're going to go down that, that road. But you know, in general, uh, we found that that uh, when it comes to the the safeguards against surveillance, and, mm-hmm. and that you know, the U.S. Uh, is you know, stronger than than most European countries, I mean, there's sort of a a menu of, of safeguards, uh, if you will, from. Uh, you know things that that define uh, upfront uh, what the the legal authority is for surveillance. Uh, uh, things that ensure that that the surveillance is not not broader than necessary and is is targeted to, um, and collects you know a limited amount of information uh, and. Particularly that there are various forms of oversight, political oversight uh, from legislatures, uh, oversight within the agencies, within the executive branches of government, and also outside oversight by independent bodies, by judges. um, uh, And the U.S. has all of those uh, from the ways that FISA and uh, the executive order, the uh, executive order 12333, it's called, that, that establishes surveillance authority. And then more recently, President Obama's uh, uh, policy directive uh, uh, in early 2014 that uh, limited uh, the, uh, the purposes of intelligence gathering and said that you know, we should extend to to non-U.S. citizens the same sets of protections uh, are substantially the same as what we give to to U.S. citizens. Um, All of those things, uh, judicial oversight and bodies that we have like uh, inspectors general and uh, uh, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which is an independent board, which is taking a hard look at some of the surveillance programs that, that Snowden revealed. I mean, all those things add up to getting the full menu. The European countries, by and large, are ordering a la carte when it comes to safeguards. Right. And, and there is a certain element of, you know, to paraphrase Casablanca, you know, I'm shocked. I'm shocked there's gambling going on here. I mean, for them to express such dismay over Snowden with, and without also acknowledging their own surveillance, you know, it seems somewhat duplicitous. And, you know, they were being opportunistic in terms of here's an opportunity for us to kind of gain ground commercially by trying to isolate the U.S., well, I think uh, I think you need to sort of separate that to two different kinds of of opportunism here. Um, uh, one's uh, the more cynical uh, kind of opportunism, and you know, that's what you've suggested. And uh, I don't think you can dismiss uh, all of the reaction as being uh, protectionist or opportunistic or mercantilistic um, but unquestionably that's a factor and there are players in the process you know, companies uh, uh, that stand to benefit from uh, from getting uh, uh, data localized in the European Union or building up uh, European cloud services uh, or uh, protecting European content, um, uh, who are happy to exploit this. Um, but I think uh, there are definitely strong 
privacy uh, sentiments that are uh, are well, sort of a strong cultural and political strain in Europe. That's that's also at play here, and I think some of some of what's going on here is sort of using using uh, American uh, surveillance uh, and transatlantic data transfers uh, as a lever to get at European surveillance uh, as well and to uh, limit what the European Union member states uh, can do. Um, and I think in some sense that's a reasonable thing. I mean, we have a political debate about the scope of surveillance here. I think uh, the Europeans should have a political uh, debate. But while that debate's going on, they should apply the same standards to uh, to the U.S. that they apply to their member states or that they apply to other countries around the world that they've said are adequate. Um, I think that's, as, as a matter of fairness in the relationship, um, is reasonable. Uh, it's also something that's, as we point out in our report, is required by trade law. Uh, uh, the the uh, trade agreements uh, uh, require that you give what's called national treatment. In other words, that you don't discriminate uh, against trading partners compared to uh, how you apply your own laws. And that certainly comes to bear in how, uh, how this comparison of U.S. surveillance versus the member states uh, applies here. They got to apply their law the same way, and they may, uh, in the court of justice or the court of human rights, or two different courts in the European Union that deal with this. Um, they may have a process of, of uh, several years of changing their norms on surveillance. I think. You know, most people look at the decisions here and say that you know clearly uh, both of those courts are kind of pushing in a direction uh, when it comes to you know, privacy rights and freedom of expression and uh, protecting those from from government surveillance and um, uh, that that may be a very good thing but that's probably a process of 10 or 15 years and you shouldn't have one standard for the United States and a different standard for the European countries while that process of change takes place. Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk to more with Cameron on this. And um, for those listening, you can check out our blog, cyberlawradio.wordpress. We have uh, explanations about the report, links to the executive summary, as well as links to Cam's prior appearance on the show and some background information on the uh, European Court of Justice decision. So we'll be back after these messages. More with Cameron Carey after these. Stay tuned for sponsor. more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis. SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com, that's S-P-Y-F-U.com, and start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. Are you paying too much for your paid advertising? Or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? I'm David Ogletree, president of WME Training. Did you know that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average? At WME Training, we can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean, converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the marketing experts at WMETraining.com. 
Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. I'm Kerry about the U.S.-EU um, privacy conflict and Sidley and Austin's report on, uh, on the differences or the similarities between U.S. and E.U. privacy law called essentially equivalent. And um, we were just talking about the uh, some of the fact that the EU also has a, a security apparatus and and doesn't you know in some ways has not been uh, you know, it's unfair to necessarily just label this as one sided that the you know the US has the NSA and the EU is somehow uh, pure virgin snow when it comes to the issue of privacy and, and so in getting to on the report uh, talking about the the robust nature of U.S. privacy protections, um, you know, there, the U.S. actually has, in, in that sense, in our constitution, a right of privacy. And, and in addition to a, a, a broad statutory framework, um, you've referenced the, the FISA, which for listeners is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that uh, sets a procedure before you know, and, um, surveillance can be conducted in certain circumstances. Uh, it, Tell us a bit about the conclusions of the report in terms of the robust nature of U.S. privacy protections. I'm sure. Well, you, uh, you know, you've mentioned uh, some of the protections that exist uh, uh, against government, um, and certainly you know, I, our Constitution, our Fourth Amendment, and a lot of the law that's built up on that uh, has uh, has strong protections uh, against. Uh, uh, as as against the government uh, and uh, Congress, uh, when it uh, adopted the, the Privacy Act in 1970, uh, said that uh, privacy is a fundamental right. Uh, and uh, there's certainly a lot of constitutional law that looks at uh, the uh, importance of dignity and autonomy uh, in uh, in people's lives. But I, part of what we look at in the report is the the strong protections that have also developed in the commercial sector. Um, and uh, this is something that Europeans have a hard time getting their arms around because of differences in our legal systems. We have a common law system. They have a civil law system. Right. They have comprehensive codes. So they've got their their privacy directive, which they're now in the process of making a, a new regulation, or something that will be directly binding on all the member states. And so they're used to looking at a single law. And so our body of laws, the the sort of mosaic of different federal sectoral laws uh, and uh, agency enforcement, uh, particularly the Federal Trade Commission, and state laws uh, and uh, the common law uh, overlay on that, uh, sort of the, uh, the enforcement by the Federal Trade Commission uh, of companies' uh, privacy policies and promises. All of that confuses the hell out of uh, the Europeans. Uh, uh, and I literally have seen uh, in print uh, reasonably authoritative publications, the Americans have no laws on privacy. No. Um, so, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of what we do is to, to uh, try to disabuse them of, of that notion and to look at uh, uh, the ways that that you know, in our commercial sector, um, privacy is really deeply in, 
embedded. Um, you know, I think one of the first earliest laws I know of on privacy uh, anywhere uh, is uh, the U.S. Uh, declaring in 1792 when we established a postal service uh, that the content of that was was protected. Interesting. Um, and you know that that the tradition continues. And I mean, in fact, the origins of privacy law on both sides of the Atlantic are uh, are very similar. Some of the first laws. Uh, that get adopted are 1970. We have a Privacy Act, uh, correct, um, and uh, all the connection with that uh, established a set of fair information uh, uh, practice principles, uh, um, and those those principles are really the foundation for privacy law internationally. So you know, the U.S. fair information practice principles influence uh, uh, recommendations by the, the International Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Those recommendations, in turn, uh, become the foundation for the 1995 European Privacy Directive. And the earliest European privacy law is... Again, 1970, the same time as we're adopting the, uh, the, the Privacy Act. So there's a lot that's uh, in common, um, and then a lot that has built up. So in the U.S., we have uh, you know, a uh, privacy uh, legal regime that focuses on particular Sectors. So we've got video privacy. We've got uh, healthcare uh, privacy. We've got financial uh, privacy rules that uh, protect your credit information and give you uh, access to credit information and you know, even uh, a right to be forgotten when it comes to uh, bankruptcies. Uh, so uh, there are a lot of similarities. We have, uh, and on top of that sectoral. Stuff. You have agency regulations that that uh, implement uh, uh, the healthcare HIPAA uh, rules and privacy rules that have evolved. Uh, you now have data breach notification laws in 47 states and state security laws, and of course uh, the uh, the California Privacy Act that requires companies to have privacy policies. Those privacy policies then get enforced by the Federal Trade Commission, so, and now that enforcement has been been very active. So, you know, there is a very rich tapestry uh, of laws uh, uh, in the United States that that provide much stronger protection than people uh, people realize. In fact. Um, you know, two uh, uh, researchers uh, at Berkeley, uh, Kenneth Bamberger and Deirdre Mulligan, published a very valuable book that, that we rely on that did a, 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 an empirical comparison of privacy practices uh, uh, in some European countries and in the United States, as seen through the eyes of privacy officers who have to put those privacy uh, practices um, uh, into play uh, and, and deal with uh, with compliance and so on. It's called privacy on, on the ground. And the basic notion is, you know, you got privacy on the books, great laws, right. but you, know, you got to look at what actually happens on the ground. And they found that... that you know, because of the risk of litigation, because of things like data breach laws, because of, uh, you know, frankly, the the impact on the marketplace. Uh, if you screw up on your privacy practices, um, that that in fact, privacy officers and companies in the United States have more influence. Uh, you know, more in the. Uh, sort of the strategic center of the companies uh, than in most European com countries. 
Well, that's very interesting. But one thing I found interesting from your report was this idea that is somehow the U.S. and EU are separate silos that have you know different privacy standards. And one thing the report used to debunk that is the degree to which our respective privacy laws borrow from each other. No, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, one of the uh, one other thing in the report, which actually, in fact, the work I did when I was in, in law school is that that you know everybody everybody looks at the the famous uh, uh, Louis Brandeis Samuel Warren uh, Law Review article from from 1890, right. Uh, the right to privacy as the fountainhead of privacy law in the United States. And that's, uh, as you know, has been a sort of source of uh, common law and found its way in into legislation. Well, um, European legal scholars uh, uh, attribute uh, some of the origins of their laws to Warren and Brandeis. Interesting. And, in fact, despite the... Uh, uh, in spite of uh, uh, you know, the, the civil law system that I, I talked about, and you have to have something incorporated in a civil code for it to, to be law, and you don't have common law. Uh, the French, actually, for uh, from the 19th century until 1970, had this right of privacy develop as judge-made law. Hmm. And uh, finally, in 1970, they uh, they put a right to privacy into uh, into the civil code. Um, so, you know, the very much parallel developments. Now, it's not to say that there aren't differences. I mean, we certainly deal with the balance between uh, privacy and freedom of expression differently than the Europeans do. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, I think, the generalization about the differences is the privacy in Europe is much more focused on individual autonomy uh, and dignity. Mm-hmm. In the United States, it's about freedom. Right. Um, and I think that's uh, true on a certain level, but... Uh, it's also clear that that uh, dignity and autonomy are an important part of privacy in our system, um, and you know, Europeans care about uh, about freedom and free expression uh, as well. So uh, you know, we have the same same values, the same principles. Uh, we apply them a little bit differently. Um, that shouldn't be. Uh, enough of a difference to say yeah, we're not essentially equivalent uh, when it comes to privacy protection. Uh, following on that point, you work to try to push privacy legislation here in the U.S., which which you know seems to make progress, and then various reasons, maybe too many people uh, in the constituency groups, you know, who need to form reach an agreement, it's just, it's too hard to do. You know, it doesn't seem to happen. We don't seem to get there. Uh, do you have a sense of whether passion or um, the value of privacy is any different in the EU than it is here? Um, well, I guess I'm, I'm not entirely sure what you... Uh, you mean by the question? Uh, I, I guess. Uh, yeah. Look, I think there is a stronger, uh, a stronger uh, privacy uh, privacy constituency uh, there. The, the, the politics are uh, are different. And, and is do you think that's what? What do you think it would take to get privacy legislation passed here in the U.S.? Uh, well, I think uh, some changes in leadership, a change in control, and uh, in Congress, uh, for one thing, um, I, and I, you know, I think a, a change in approach. I mean, you know, there has been uh, a lot of legislating on on privacy um, uh, in the last 
couple of years and, and a surprising amount of interest in privacy legislation. Some of that's been focused on cybersecurity. It's been focused on, on government surveillance. So it's sort of very reactive to the issue of the moment. And, and then there are a number of bills uh, to address, for example, educational privacy as you know, uh, people... Uh, yeah, there's a clear constituency on both sides of the aisle, and you know if you look at some of the state legislation um, in some of the reddest states of the country, uh, Idaho has adopted a student data uh, law. Um, so there's a constituency out there for this, I think, um, but you know, we tend to do this in a piecemeal way. I think the problem in this day and age is that that's, that's a losing proposition. It's like cybersecurity, you're, you're always playing catch-up. Right. Um, you know, and today with, with the digitization uh, of everything and the datafication of everything, um, and increasingly you know, the, the wide deployment of, of sensors and... and uh, other digital streams of data all over the place, whether it's cars or roads uh, or home appliances uh, um, uh, or uh, you've got drones uh, right. uh, and, and uh, we have digitalization of, of camera information uh, um, uh, and uh, coupled with the uh, uh, face recognition, um, you know, the, the the pace of those changes is faster than we can legislate on a piecemeal basis. Right. So I do I think, it, you know, a sort of a basic understanding of you know, some broad privacy principles uh, uh, that that will be a baseline, uh, uh, regardless of what the sector is, what the new technology is. Uh, so uh, we've got to. Uh, a set of broad and flexible uh, uh, but universal uh, expectations uh, for uh, for businesses and for consumers for individuals when um in when I was in law school i, I we I mentioned this once I, I actually we worked in the same building on k Street I worked for a firm and I was in the legislative shopping covering banking legislation. And it seemed every two years we went to the same hearing on the same bill. And it would, it took eventually over 12 to 14 years, I think, before the legislation passed. And that was the banking reform that happened in the 90s. And, and I think I attributed part of the problem to the fact that the number of people that had to sit at a table to reach an agreement. You, know, you had the... the yeah, it's very complicated. You have you know bankers, insurance, securities, consumer groups, and 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 I, and I picture the table um, for a privacy debate or you know privacy negotiations for legislation, and and it, it's just as many people. And you throw in an additional layer. We're not talking about a banking system or a security system that's been set in stone for you know since 1930. We're talking about technology that just happened. <laughs> and uh -huh. um, yep. so uh, I'm getting a message. We have to take a break, but when I come back, I'd like to see what, you know, what your thoughts on that, and then we can sure. back off and and send you on your on your way. But um, we'll be back after these messages. We're talking to Cameron Carey here on um, Cyber Law and Business Report. Stay tuned. More of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Conversion Conference, the can't-miss CRO event of 2016. Join over 750 people from dozens of countries gathering in Las Vegas, May 18th and 19th, for the biggest industry-wide conversion event ever. Four parallel tracks of top content will allow you to personalize the exact topics that you want to focus on, interact with expert speakers at informal networking events, and birds of a feather lunch table topics. Meet dozens of leading CRO companies face-to-face -face in the expo hall. Get hands-on with pre-conference workshops and master classes. Join us for fun activities such as zip lining and Tim Ash's after party in the presidential suite. Oh yeah, did we mention that it's in Vegas, baby? 
see? May 18th and 19th. Conversion Conference last year sold out fast, and it's expected to sell out again. So don't miss it. Go to conversionconference.com for details right now. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at box speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts. But did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. I just threw him a, a, a very long and loaded question, um, so I thought we'd let you give, give the opportunity to respond. I'm uh, sure. Well, big legislation, uh, uh, you know, almost always uh, takes time. Uh, you know, before I went in the government, uh, I was a, uh, a communications lawyer and represented uh, uh, cable companies and competitive communications carriers, and um, you know, that that was uh, the subject of. Uh, Legislation for uh, for years. Uh, so um, I think 1984 was uh, the breakup of uh, the Dell monopoly, um, and that that was also the beginning of talking about legislation to change telecommunica- telecommunications regulation. Um, that finally produced legislation in. Uh, 12 years later. In exactly. Um, when I was at the Commerce Department, we passed uh, what was the most significant patent reform in about 150 years, most significant changes to the patent process. Um, but that took about eight years uh, to do. Uh, and I think uh, when, when uh, uh, we undertook uh, to... Uh, say, all right, this is something the Obama administration should back. Let's get this passed. Uh, a lot of people were skeptical. Uh, they said, look, this is uh, going to follow the same thing that's been happening for uh, the past years. Um, you know, pharma and tech aren't going to be able to agree, and uh, there's just some different uh, uh, different approaches to the patent system because uh, of different business models, um, it'll die again. Um, but uh, eventually, we found uh, well, found found a way through. Uh, I think it's going to take uh, you're going to have to march up the hill several times to get privacy uh, legislation passed. Well, maybe someday we will. But I, I want to thank you for joining us. It, it's been a pleasure having you again, and, and thank you again for including me in the delegation on the trip to China. Um, if people want to learn more about you and your practice and and uh, about the report, where should they go? Uh, com, uh, Or you can follow our blog at uh, Sidley dot data matters that's one word dot dot com and are, are you are you on twitter to the, to the report i am on twitter uh, at cam carey great well cam thank you as always i hope i hope you enjoyed it and uh it's informative it's a very interesting topic um and i think the case had to be made and, and you guys did a great job 
um, well, doing Anna, it. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate your uh, your kind words on our report and calling attention to it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Cam. Um, I appreciate it. So we only have a few minutes left, and um, but I want to thank Cam again. And you can learn more about the report. Um, there's a link to it on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio as well, um, and, and you can follow Cam too. And um, so this really, uh, there is one important development we, we talked about briefly in um, our discussion. And um, just last month, President Obama signed the Judicial Redress Act that will actually give EU citizens uh, the right to enforce uh, privacy violations under the safe harbor in U.S. courts. Uh, and um, last week, the, um, the Department of Commerce and the U- EU un- unveiled the uh, details of the new U.S.-EU Privacy Shield. And um, we have some information on that on the blog as well as uh, at uh, the Internet Law Center blog, ilccyberreport.wordpress.com. And um, check us out at the Internet Law Center. We're a full-service firm um, dedicated to issues like privacy and e-commerce as well as representing victims of cyber harassment worldwide. Um, we're on the web at www.internetlawcenter.net. And you can follow us on Twitter at Internet Law Cent. C-E-N-T, um, not enough letters for the last two E-R part. But um, that's all we have for this week. Um, definitely come back next week. we got another edition. And um, so we'll be same back channel. And uh, until then, the record is adjourned and we'll be back again um, during the heart of March Madness to talk more about the latest developments in Internet law um, right here on Cyber Law and Business Report. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. And go Friars. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.